All right, again this morning, if you'll turn to the book of Philippians, we want to continue on in our study of this book. We've worked our way down to verse 12 in chapter 1. The title of the sermon, I don't know if you've ever heard that before, that when life throws you lemons, you can make lemonade. Well, on my notes, I want to just clarify that life is not some indiscriminate thing out there. God sends lemons, okay? And God, by His grace, can enable us, by His Spirit and His Word, to turn it into lemonade and find that it will be something sweet as it comes from His hand. Um, it's rather interesting. I've got one commentator that I'm using as well as, I try to read several, but one, one of the guys, his title for this section, are you ready for this? Prison is great. Wish you were here. <laughs> when I saw that, I go, that's a different perspective. Paul's saying, yeah, prison is great. Wish you were here. It's better than the Holiday Inn Express, so to speak, you know? Well, that's what it's all about. All right, here we go. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, sometimes translated praetorian guard, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others preaching from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Whew. Boy, what a word. Somebody else has called this section delight in the midst of disaster. And Paul's telling you and me, hey, let me share with you my delight because sitting here in this prison is not something that I would have put on my daytime this week. Now, Paul's not the only one. I just want to remind you as we get started on this message that throughout history, there have been many who have personally encountered the situation like Paul, maybe not in prison, but very difficult circumstances. And uh, they've had the reaction somewhat like Paul. You ever heard of Handel? Handel wrote his Hallelujah Chorus. When he did, his health and his fortunes had reached an all-time low. His right side had become paralyzed. All of his money was gone. He was heavily in debt and threatened to be put in prison. He was tempted to give up the fight. The odds seemed entirely too great. It was then, it was then that he composed Messiah. This next Christmas, when you hear that beamed across the radio or places, remember that. And I want to say to you and I, as we get started this morning, you may be going through one of the lowest seasons in your life. Very possible. We, we sometimes are somewhat hesitant to really say what we're going through. You know, we have that, and I'm just as guilty. How you doing, Pastor Ed? I'm just great. <laughs> and underneath, it's all falling apart. Maybe you've been recently diagnosed with some kind of serious illness, and you don't know what you're going to do. Maybe you lost your job, and you have no idea how God's going to provide for you. 
Maybe your parents, kids, are getting a divorce and you're scared and angry. Been there. After 35 years, my father and mother and my wife's mother and father divorced. Though I was an adult, that almost crushed me. Maybe a friend or family member has passed away and you just don't know, how am I going to go on? Can I tell you today that whatever you're going through, there's hope? There really is. That's not some pie-in-the-sky theory. There's real hope. God is able to work in and through you in the midst of your pain. Now remember, we have a vital part to play in that. We don't just sit down like a bump on a log and let God just work it out. Am I safe in saying that the Christian life can be bittersweet? I mean, sometimes it... I have a friend named Tom Smith. I think Tom's still in the ministry. One time in his message, he said, you know, life really bites. It just grabs a hold of you and bites deeply. And it can, but at the same time, being a Christian can be sweet in the sense that any suffering, listen, any suffering I go through is never wasted on God. You've heard of a guy named John Piper? John Piper wrote a booklet. You know what it was called? Don't waste your cancer. Listen, please, if you go to Amazon, you'll see this write up. How are we as Christians called to respond when cancer invades our lives, whether our bodies or those of our friends and family? On the evening of his cancer surgery, John Piper writes about cancer, listen, as an opportunity to glorify God. Piper gently but firmly acknowledges we can waste our cancer when we don't see how it is God's good plan for us and a hope-filled path for making much of Jesus. God works his purposes even in the midst of our pain. In fact, God will do some of his best work in and through us when we are in the midst of personal crisis. You ever heard of C.S. Lewis? He said this one time, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. May God help us even this morning as we study this passage to have the arousing of the Spirit of God in our hearts and minds. Well, in today's passage, Paul shares from personal experience that it is my perspective in times of pain that makes all the difference. How do I see it? The question Paul asks himself is not, is what is happening to me fair? Rather, he poses this question. Is what is happening to me accomplishing something for God? Is it furthering his purposes in this world? If we reflect on this question, we will discover that we can have our best witness in our worst circumstances. Anybody here ever heard of David Ring? He's got a famous message. I have cerebral palsy. What's your problem? Now, when you listen to him for a couple of moments, it's hard to understanding, but it doesn't take long to get into the rhythm. You know anything about David Ring? Listen, few individuals have felt the crushing blows that have besieged David since his birth. Since his birth. He was born, according to the world, to lose. October the 28th, 1953, in Jonesboro, Arkansas, David was born with cerebral palsy. Orphaned at age 14, he was cast about from family to family with no place to call home. He endured constant physical pain humiliating public ridicule. You know how kids can be with people with those kinds of serious illnesses. And also, he had constant discouragement. Yet, 
In the face of seeming insurmountable obstacles, David emerged not as a victim, but as a victorious conqueror through Christ. David's life was seemingly worse than hopeless until his relationship with Jesus Christ, who taught him to see himself as made in the image of God with worth and value, loved from all eternity, and redeemed by the grace of Christ. To many, physical challenges of this magnitude would prove to be a tombstone, but to David Ring, this coming of age was and remains a milestone. You've never heard a speaker quite like David Ring, I promise you. Somewhat difficult to understand at first, you will soon be captivated by his wit. I'll never forget, and I think this is on a television program. He said, you know, they always told me with cerebral palsy that, number one, I'd never get married. Then on the screen they show a picture of his wife, and he goes, pretty good, huh? (laughs) And they said, I'd never have children. Put up, I think, two or three children. Pretty good, huh? Yeah. As you listen to him, you will laugh and you will cry. You'll be amazed at God's grace and power in his life, and you will be challenged to consider your own life. As one who has not been stifled by his physical limitations, he clearly stakes his challenge to everyone. I have cerebral palsy. What's your problem? And he often says this phrase as well. When God sends difficult times into our life, don't ask why. Ask what? God, what do you want to accomplish in my life for your glory through this illness or this problem? What a perspective. And then I read this week about joy. Not the word, but a person. Joy. Who is joy? Well, her name was joy, and it fit her beautifully. I was a young pastor when I was called to shepherd the church to which joy belonged. Just a few years out of seminary, I treasured my hours in a study, interpreting the Bible, preparing sermons. I was not all that eager to visit our aging congregation shut-ins. It was not that I lacked sympathy for their pain and loneliness and frustration. It was just I really felt overwhelmed, and I didn't know what to say many times how I could bring them comfort. I did what I could. I listened attentively. I read the scriptures, and I prayed for my suffering brothers and sisters. But often, I left with a heavy heart, questioning whether or not I had brought them solace that they needed. My visits to joy, however, were far different. Joy was not elderly, but by the time I met her, her rheumatoid arthritis had curled her hands into tiny fists, confined her to a wheelchair, and filled her days and nights with pain. At the start of my pastorate, she had the strength to attend worship services every now and then. Later came years of home confinement and repeated hospitalizations. In her own family, Joy was the only one who believed on Christ. If, humanly speaking, anyone had reason to complain and pity herself, it was joy. Yet every time I visited her, I was brought great encouragement. She took the initiative in our conversations. The questions were about our family, our children, others in our church. Rarely did she mention her pain and trials. Gratitude to her God and concern for others overflowed from her heart time and time again. Hearing my description of joy, you might be inclined to think, ah, some people are just born cheerful. I envy them. That may be true of some, but I can assure you that joy did not come naturally to joy. She struggled with loneliness and at times with great discouragement and confusion over the promises and purposes of God. She would have been the first to insist that the resource that made her so refreshing to others came not from within herself, but outside of herself in Christ Jesus through the gospel.
Well, I'm sure you have illustrations you could give and I could give many more, but let's get into our text. This is where we're going this morning. Paul's in prison and he's going to have this same perspective. He's going to tell us God has ordained it, yes, and he's going to take and make lemonade out of this lemony-filled situation. Remember now, he's, he's writing from prison. I keep saying that, but we need to remember that. And if you want to study what prison was like in that day, it'll give you a really better perspective. So Paul is on his way to, to prison. It ended up in Rome. Paul was chained to 24 hours a day, confined to a lodging. And if you read in Acts 28, are you ready for this? Paul had to pay his own room and board. Oh, yeah. Acts 28 says, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. He lived there two whole years, and here's the phrase, at his own expense. Well, how did he get there? How did Paul end up in prison? Well, someone has said, I think it was Unger, who said this was an amazing series of events that brought Paul to Rome, the greatest capital city of the empire. One archaeological source suggests that the population of this imperial city in the first century was in excess of four million people, about three times the size of a large modern city. If you go back a little bit in Paul's life, when he wrote to the saints in Rome when he was in Corinth, that is Greece, during the course of his third missionary journey, he had expressed an intense longing to visit these Christians. I think in Paul's mind it's safe to say he saw this as an evangelistic opportunity. Little did he realize how in the providence of God his goal would be fulfilled far beyond his understanding. Chain of events that led his third missionary journey ended in Jerusalem. He's in the company of the brothers. He's brought to the holy city and he's there for a contribution for the poor of that region. At first, he was happily embraced by the brothers in Jerusalem. But they said, Paul, we got a problem. You have a problem. Your reputation has gone before you. There is a report that's been spread abroad that you are antagonistic to the Jewish system. And in accordance with that, to disarm a volatile situation in Acts 21, Paul submitted to a ceremonial cleansing in the temple. He sought to do something to disarm his enemies. This act of what might be called benevolence hardly appeased these Jews. Why? Because Paul had been seen in the city with a man named Trophimus, a Gentile from Ephesus. And so as things go, a rumor quickly spread that Paul was taking Greeks into the temple. And you know what that said to a Jew? You have defiled the sacred place. That in their religion was a capital offense. Before long, the city was aflame with the same things that the Lord Jesus heard when they said, crucify him. The words were, lynch him, get rid of him, kill him. He's desecrated the temple. Paul was spared, humanly speaking, only when a Roman official intervened and took him to a place of safety. Under heavy guard, and some have suggested as many as, are you ready for this, 470 soldiers. I don't know what they were thinking he was going to do. But under 470 soldiers in Acts 23, he was taken to Caesarea over on the coast and was confined in Herod's palace. You can read about the interrogations in Acts 24, 25, and 26. Finally, after two years had gone by, it appeared that, as someone has said, justice delayed is justice denied. This powerful minister of the gospel came to the conclusion he was never going to get a fair hearing in his present circumstances. So what did he do? 
he appealed to Caesar. I want to go, I want to, go to Caesar. And so they did. There's a voyage to Caesar, graphically detailed by Luke in Acts 27. It is, as someone has said, the most remarkable account of ancient sea navigation in the annals of history. Incidentally, this person, I think his name is Jackson, said the accuracy of Luke's record is a striking example of the precision of the biblical narrative. So Paul has made his way. He's now in Rome. He's in prison. And from prison, remember, we've talked about this. He wants to write back to them so he can tell them what's going on. Verse 12, the first part says, I want you to know, brothers, you need to understand what's going on about my circumstances. Now, why did he do that? I think, first of all, to inform them of what was going on but also to set their minds at ease and to encourage them to take the same perspective that he had. You too, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, are going to suffer. And when you do, not if you do, when you do, you need to respond to your circumstances the way that I'm trying to respond to mine. It's a note of encouragement. It's something that Christians can do a lot. Telling your story, telling what God's doing in your life can build up and encourage other people. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. Now look at his joyful outlook. Look at his joyful perspective beginning at the last part of verse 12. Number one, his imprisonment, his chains have actually been a means for the advancement and the progress of the gospel. Where I come from, we'd say, who to thunk it? In prison, advancement of the gospel, they don't seem to go together. While it is true that Paul was granted some liberties, remember, he's still a prisoner. Now, he's serving in a prison in Rome, most likely in the custody of what is called the Praetorian Guard. These are the elites housed in the emperor's palace. They are specialized, they're hand-picked, and they are military-focused. They were Caesar's own personal bodyguards. They were strong SEAL Team 6. Does that, does that make? Just got finished reading a book about that, so I'm really pumped when I talk about stuff like this. Adam Brown, anybody ever heard of Adam Brown? You read that? My wife's reading it now. It's called Fearless. You, you're not long into that book and you're saying, this guy's not human. The exploits, he became a Christian, praise God. But the exploits, humanly speaking, that God enabled him to do are almost superhuman, just supernatural. That's kind of what these guys are like. Sophisticated, brilliant, courageous, strong, and young, vibrant. Kind of a mixture of West Point and the Secret Service. They served in the palace guard. Now listen to this. They served for 12 years protecting Caesar and guarding these prisoners who had appealed to Caesar. After 12 years, they transitioned into other influential careers. See the hand of God here? See the providential hand of God? Watch. Some of them went to be commanding generals of larger forces. Others went into public office and became senators or ambassadors to other countries. Still others advanced into the top echelons of business and industry. As a group, they were the movers and shakers of the future, the opinion leaders, the kingmakers of the next generation. They were a powerful and strategic group of young men. If you wanted to influence the whole Roman Empire, you could not have picked a better group to start with. <laughs> Someone wrote, every day Paul probably grinned to himself. Just big old Cheshire cat grin. Why? Well, one of them wore the chain on this end. Paul was chained on this end. 
And the fact of the matter was, he was not chained to them. They were chained to him. Perspective. You understand that? He wasn't chained to them. They were chained to him. He had what we might call a captive audience. And every person he had a conversation with, it wasn't long before he talked about Jesus Christ. Now, if anybody here into Shackley, whew, I'm going to be okay then. When my wife and I were in Oklahoma, we heard about this new organization called Shackley. It's kind of like the other tier thing. And what we noticed was this. As we were being trained, no matter what you were talking about, very quickly you had to come around how Shackley's vitamins and cleaning products were the greatest things in sliced bread. And, you just, and what you do is you drive people away. Because all you ever talk about is Shackley. You're trying to recruit them because if they sell, you get it. If somebody under them sells, you get it. You understand what I'm saying? The, the tear? Paul's in prison. They're chained to him. He don't need to go nowhere. He's just talking. What are you doing here, sir? Why are you a, a, a prisoner in here? Oh, glad you asked. And then he would share the gospel. And God would work with his testimony. They'd get converted. They'd go off their shift and another guy would come on. If they were four-hour shifts, mathematicians, how many shifts is that? Six. And they had to have a day or two off, so that's another six. You see what's happening? The exponential thing? Paul's sharing the gospel, and God is moving. That's why this led to a chain reaction of conversions throughout the whole Roman palace. Now, the circ- be, be assured, the circumstance in and of itself was very stressful. Don't you think that Paul didn't have some sleepless nights? Don't you think he wasn't heartbroken? But he's also filled with joy. In his correspondence, you read things like this, the prisoner of Christ, the prisoner of the Lord, ambassador in chains. And by the way, chains, you can study that, were a, were a symbol of shame. Multiple references to bonds, imprisonment, even in the first chapter here of Philippians. It is obvious that the apostle's status as a prisoner was a constant reminder of the sacrifices that sometimes have to be made for the sake of the gospel. And Paul says, no problem. Glad to do it. Why? Because Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. There's a word here. It says the gospel is advancing. Verse 12. Other translations use the word progress. That's a Greek word. It's a combination of two words. The word is prokopto. Pro, which means forward, and kopto, which means to cut. Originally, the word was employed about a pioneer cutting his way through brushwood. Those guys that go to parts of the world and take their machetes and cut away, and they're pioneers. That's the word here. Paul views his troubles in the most positive light possible. They were like an advance party preparing the way for the success of the gospel. This was his part to play that Christ would be made known. Someone has said a prison door closes behind Paul, but a gospel door opens in front of him. Doesn't that display the wonderful sovereignty of God? Isn't that, isn't that my biggest problem? I am so prone to complain and bellyache about what's happening. It would be great if at the front end I could say, Oh God, I have no idea what's happening, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to make Christ known wherever I can, and I'm going to trust you for the results. No, if you're like me, I gripe and complain and bellyache. I get through the experience and look back and say, Oh, duh, you, you don't get it, Ed. 
When are you ever going to wake up and see that what God is doing, He always does? How many? And here's, a, here's an evidence of His love. When God's trying to do something in my life, and I flunk, I fail, He doesn't stop. He brings it back to me again. He brings it back again. You know why? Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He always gets His man. He's going to get the job done. Remember verse 6 of Philippians chapter 1? I'm convinced. That the same God who began this work in me is going to do what? He's going to get her. That's, does that sound country? He's going to get her done. Okay? And he will. See. It's making progress. Well, how far is it progressing? Well, first of all, inside the palace. Look at verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Humanly speaking, Paul is directly responsible for the advance of the gospel in the whole palace section. Palace guard refers, as I said a moment ago, to these elite troops. They guarded Paul around the clock. But guess what else they had to do? They had to let him have visitors. They had to let him write letters and other routine affairs. Since they rotated on basically four-hour shifts, Paul would have access to several or many of them from whom eventually the whole, that's what he said, the whole guard came to know the reason for his bonds. I wonder what that locker room discussion was like. <laughs> you just get off, yeah. Hey, there's this new prisoner in here. His name is uh, Paul. I had a little chance to talk to him. Do you know why he's here? Yeah, he probably killed somebody. No. Did he rebel against the government? No. What did he do? He's talking about this guy named Jesus. He's in prison for talking about and living for Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, doggone, when I get with him next time, I'll ask him. So he does. You see what's happening? The chain reaction, the gospel is making advances through Paul's imprisonment. That's amazing. I don't know about you, but I am blown away. It's amazing. So what does that mean for my life? If I'm just faithful in prison or out of prison, it doesn't matter. If I am focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking about Him as often as I can, wherever I can, He's going to work. People are going to be converted. And the gospel is going to make progress. In chapter 4 and verse 22, it talks about Caesar's household. There's a little phrase in verse 13, and to all the rest. I'm not sure what that means. Probably it means another group of people outside the Praetorian Guard who had dealings inside the palace. We don't know. The point is this. Anyone in Rome who had occasion to know about Paul's confinement also knew why he was there. But outside the palace, as well as inside, things were, things were buzzing. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. Look at the connection there. Their confidence came from reflecting upon Paul being imprisoned for the gospel of Jesus Christ are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Take those two words, bold and without fear. Guys outside the palace who perhaps have never met Paul are hearing about this guy in there. The buzz is getting around about what God is doing. Soldiers are getting converted. Things are happening. They hear about it. And they go, well, doggone it. If he can do it in there under the chains, I can do it here without the chains. And they're encouraged and they're more bold to speak about Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer it. Just answer it to yourself. What does it take to keep me from sharing Christ? That's, that's a humbling thought, isn't it? 
The majority of Christians in Rome have not only embraced Christ, but are now bold to speak it. Someone has said many Christians see Paul shackled as a criminal for testifying, testifying about Jesus and his grace, and for some strange reason they want to imitate the behavior that got him arrested. They're all the more eager, confident, bold, without fear. Can I tell you one of the reasons why I want to pray for the persecuted church when I have the privilege of pastoral prayer? Because I want their testimony to inflame my heart to do here in freedom what they're doing in persecution. And if you'll take the time, I'll put a plug in here. If you'll take the time to read about the persecuted church on a regular basis, as you read about what they are enduring and how they're responding and how they're sharing the gospel and how they will not deny Jesus Christ, I have to believe your heart's going to say, oh my goodness, what is my problem? And may I also say that if I won't do it when I'm out of prison, if the day ever comes when I'm in prison, I won't do it there as well. If it's not a spiritual habit that's been worked into my life, nothing magical happens when I'm imprisoned. The gospel has captured Paul's heart. <laughs> and he is free from the petty and self-centered desires for personal notoriety. And the inference is that we can do the same. Such confidence can rescue the Philippians from fright in the face of intimidation in their city. And may I say, by way of a personal application to us, the same thing is true for living legacy here in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Paul's testimony is God's answer to the threats that may tempt us to play it safe and keep a low profile regarding our allegiance to Christ as we talk to our fellow workers and students and neighbors and family members. One verse that I think is so important about Paul's life in Acts 20, 24, he says this, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. My friend Tom Smith, I mentioned a moment ago, used this phrase in regard to Paul. He's a monomaniac. There's one thing that causes his eyes to light up and his heart to skip beats as it pumped real hard, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. How about me? How about me? And see, others have caught, if you want to use that word, this disease. It's spreading. It's contagious. And in verses 15 through 18, his imprisonment chains have been the means for the progress of the gospel despite, it ain't all rosy, folks. Another reason that this prisoner is rejoicing in his cell is Christ is proclaimed. Now listen, I think, and this is my own personal opinion, anything that would pain Paul's heart had nothing to do with people except lost people. I think what pained Paul's heart was the lostness of those people and he was willing to endure imprisonment so that Christ would be proclaimed and they would be brought to faith in Jesus. Mr. Johnson says some of the gospel preachers whose eagerness had been aroused by Paul's chains had mixed emotions. Let me read those verses if I may. Verse 15 to 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me. That is, to make my imprisonment even worse. 
What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that's what I rejoice in. That's what I rejoice in. Many are spreading the word about Christ because they love Paul. They recognize God's approval of his ministry. They know that he's been put there, confined by those chains for the defense of the gospel. But some are preaching Christ to exalt themselves and to make Paul look smaller and less significant. They see themselves as Paul's rivals for eminence in the Christian community in the imperial guard. And if you don't think preachers are in competition with one another, just join the club. How many did you have on Sunday morning? How many walked the aisle? How many got saved? How's the church going? What's your, what's your budget like? How big's the congregation? How big's your property? Listen to me. And I'm going to say this. I'm just your interim pastor now so I can get away with it. If you ever get caught up in that nonsense, God will not bless you. You may, you may explode this building with 500 people but you won't have the blessing of the Spirit of God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that God's going to test a man's ministry, and the old King James is really good. Not by what size it is, but by what sort it is. It is quality. Now, is there anything wrong with growing? Don't get me wrong. I'd love to see 500 people here. I don't think I could preach to them. I'd just be too nervous. But the goal is not to compare ourselves. Remember what Paul said in Corinth? If you compare yourselves among yourselves, you ain't very wise. Be faithful. Love Christ. Make Him known. Wear the perfume of unity. Settle issues. Be faithful and focused on what God's called you to do. Let Him take care of the results. People in town were trying to make Paul look low and stupid and so out of rivalry and envy and jealousy. They were doing what they were doing. But here's what Paul says. <laughs> I don't care if it's a donkey out there preaching. If Christ is being proclaimed, that's what's important. And don't think donkeys can. You ever heard of Balaam? Quite honestly, there's some of us that are donkeys in other ways and we have the privilege of proclaiming Christ. You see what I'm saying? You see how Paul sees this? He's not this petty, jealous guy. Oh, they're out there and I'm in here and look what they're doing. I don't care. If Jesus Christ and His glory and His grace and His salvation are being preached, praise the Lord! All this rivalry and nonsense that even we face today. Paul is not going to play their game no matter how much they try to goad him. And someone has said Paul can exude this attitude because he's consumed with one thing, the gospel. He's not concerned with his own reputation, his own ministry, or happiness. Paul wants the success of the gospel. He longs for it. What an example. Listen, in our day there's all kinds of issues that cry for our attention. Abortion, pornography, media bias, economic injustice, racial discrimination, classism, sexism, just to name a few. And they're important issues. I'm not saying they're not. But the great danger is what has happened to the Christian church over the last several years. The gospel has been marginalized. But when the gospel is preached by a gospel-focused people... God will transform people and neighborhoods and cities and a culture. As someone has said, the key is keep the main thing the main thing. Listen, 
This is not a popular message in America for some, but life does not revolve about around being happily married, raising a perfect family, making a lot of money, or being successful. Life revolves around the preaching of the gospel. Preaching Christ to a lost and dying world, starting here to the farthest corners of the earth. And what was the main thing for Paul? Christ and Him crucified. What did he say in Corinth? I knew nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And so what's the result of a focus like that even in prison? Look at verse 18. Now we've got to split verse 18 in half, even though it says the same thing. He says, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And then he goes on, yes, and I will rejoice. We'll pick up there next week. Because he, he wants you to understand he's rejoicing. This ain't some pie-in-the-sky nonsense. This is true. He's really rejoicing. Let me close that if I may. Look at my watch. Oh, got a couple minutes. Christians. What was Paul's consuming passion? It was a person and the message about that person. Now don't, make no mistake, Paul's not some stoic. You know, he's not inside the, the palace and hearing that, well, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Grin and bear it. You can't change it, so not at all. Paul is consumed with a person and the message about that person. So here's the question that comes to me, and I'm going to share it with you today, too, as well. What is my passion? What really floats my boat? Despite any circumstances that may come into my life, and if we keep going as we are going as a nation, I myself personally may end up in prison, and so might you. There has been in recent past a strong push to take people like me and either shut up or throw you in prison. What would I do at that time? I'm not going to stand here and boast and say, oh, I'll just be... I don't know what I would do, but I know what I would want to do. Acts chapter 4. You guys do what you got to do. I'm going to do what i got to do, and that's to preach Christ. Okay. What do I rejoice in more than anything else? The Eagles or the Patriots? <laughs> Is it sports? Is it fun? Is it parties? Even family? Jesus said, if you don't hate mother, father, brother, sister more than me, you're not worthy of me. You know, that's not literally hating as we understand it, but you understand what he's saying? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be taken care of. And we're going to get to verse 21 next week and it says, for me... To live is Christ. Period. And to die, well, that's where I really gain. So here's another question. Get ready. Do I know the gospel? After 50-some years of preaching, I would say that most people sitting in churches this morning, even good Bible-believing, do not really know the gospel. And I'll say this again and go out on a limb. It is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Just accept His love and you can go to heaven. You're going to have a hard time finding that in Scriptures. The Gospel starts with some really bad news. <laughs> to use that terminology, not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, frown, God's really angry at you. And if something doesn't change, He's going to stay angry with you and you'll spend all of eternity 
understanding that anger in a real way. I'm not talking about being smart aleck. Listen, folks, remember what Jesus said? I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance until people are fully convinced of their terrible condition before God. They're never going to cry out for mercy and for forgiveness of sins. Do you know the gospel? Are you proclaiming it? Am I proclaiming it? Put myself on the same pedestal. If in a moment's notice I were called upon to share the gospel, could I do it? And if I can't, please don't take this as chiding you. I'm challenging you. If this is the passion of the Christian life, then we got to be passionate about it. And we got to know what we're talking about. I've seen this last week. Is it yesterday? Um, actually, two of them. One guy was in a car, and a police officer, I think it was, took and rescued him out of a burning car. And I think I saw last night that on a train, this guy had this... Uh, uh, fire blazing device and he was threatening them and they were trying to pull it away from it and it exploded and they dragged him off the train and I'm thinking to myself and and believe me I think spiritually this is the picture there are people who are that close to dying and if I'm in a situation where I can snatch them from that and take the gospel to them and bring them to faith in Jesus Christ could I do it take this as a challenge and if you can't get together with some other Christians and learn Now, I'm going to really go out on a limb here. I don't think we need another conference or class or seminar on evangelism. Ooh, I know it's going to get in trouble. It's okay. I'm just a visiting pastor. I can get away with it. You know what we need to do? Know it and tell it. Ask you a question. Do I love my wife? Pfft, ain't no question. She, next time you see her, please have a purple heart and put it on her, on her blouse. She does. Oh, you have no idea. She truly deserves a purple heart. Do I like to talk about her? Well, that's what I'm doing right now. Why? Because I love her. Do I need a class on being told how to talk about my wife whom I love? Pfft. You get the point? If I love Jesus Christ with all my heart. Now, I don't think, I'm not not negating learning scriptures and presenting and so on, but you know, there's been so many seminars and conferences over the years. I've seen them for 50 years. People will go, they'll pass the class, they'll have all this down, but if you don't do it, what good is it? So let's begin there. Let's begin with a deep and fervent love for Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.15 Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That means set Jesus Christ apart in your heart every day as the Lord. Lord, you're the boss. You're the boss. Tell me what to do and I'm going to do it. And be ready. See the order there? Sanctify Jesus. Declare Him as Lord. Live as He is Lord. And then be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within you. One more time. Do you know the gospel? Do I know the gospel? Well, Pastor Ed, you preach it all the time. That don't mean I know it. Am I proclaiming it? We have to do this, folks. Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't raise your hand. How many want to see a living legacy grow spiritually and and physically? Amen. Sure you do. 
How's it going to grow? When people take the gospel, tell other people the good news, and they respond in faith, and inevitably, if you're discipling, they're going to say, you know a good church in this area? No, I don't know any at all, but you go find one and let me know if you do. Well, why don't you come with me? We, this place, Living Legacy, where's that? Don't feel bad. Lots of places are like that. But bring them here. Love them. Disciple them. Train them to do the same thing. Interesting, the first part of the book of Acts, it's the Lord added, the Lord added, the Lord added. In about chapter 6 it says, and they multiplied. All right, you math majors. I'm going to make you an offer. If I gave you $100,000 right now, cash, cold hard cash, or the option to take a penny on a checkerboard and put it on the first square and double it until you get to the end, which would you take? When you get to the end of the checkerboard, you know how much you got? Over a million dollars. Check it out. I did, because the first time I heard that, I said, you're crazy. Check it out. The multiplication. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to just imagine with me for just a moment. Let's say 10 people in Living Legacy starting today said, you know what, by the grace of God, I'm going to pray, I'm going to witness, I'm going to tell people about Jesus, and Lord, I'm asking you for one person this year to come to know you. And when they do, I'm going to start investing my life in them. So at the end of this year, what do we got now? Now we got 10. And so those 10 add another 10, plus the 10 that they got, we now got 30 involved in it. Take that for five years, and how many people do you think will be there? You understand the principle I'm saying? That's multiplication. One plus one plus one times one times whatever. Lord, help us, please. God, help us to love your word, to love the gospel, to love Christ, and not be silent. Not be silent. Again, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, got some bad news, but I got some good news. Bad news is you and God are separated because of your sin, but the good news is Jesus came to take care of that problem. If you'll trust him as your Savior and Lord, He'll change your life and you'll be a part of God's family and that'll never change. So if you don't know him, please trust him. If you have any questions about that, there are several people in this congregation who will be glad to sit down with you and show you what the gospel's. There it is. Trust in Christ. Confess your sin. Believe that Jesus died in your place. Trust him as your savior. Receive him and begin living for him. Your life will never be the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for reminding us about the main thing. The songwriter said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Lord, we come to you this morning and we acknowledge, not to the point of despair, just being honest, that we don't love you as we ought to, we don't talk about you as we ought to. Lord, we want a reigniting, a reviving, a refreshing work of your spirit in our hearts so we can keep the main Thing, the main thing. God, how great would it be over the next month or two in our times of fellowship together, we can say, hey, been talking to this guy at work and sharing the gospel and he trusted Christ this week. Luke chapter 15, there were three things that were lost and every one of them found the angels in heaven rejoicing. Oh, what rejoicing that would cause us to have, Lord. Help us to get about that business and to do it for you. Don't let my message this morning drive us to discouragement, but may it challenge us to go forward. The past is the past is the past. Let it stay there. The future is ahead of us, and by your grace we can do 
Because this same book says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength to do it. Help us, Lord, to do it for the glory of your name, for the salvation of lost people, for the blessing of this congregation and the testimony of Jesus both here and around the world. And I ask it in the mighty and wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want us to sing a song I asked Rachel if she would